welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm John Kennedy, and welcome to Pod Ipsa Locator, the podcast produced by the CLE Committee of the Connecticut Trial Lawyers Association. Joining me today as co-host is attorney Cindy Robinson. We have a very special guest today to discuss the aftermath of last week's election and the numerous claims, lawsuits, recounts, and other issues that have been created by the election of President-elect Joe Biden. We have with us a, a special guest, and I'm gonna ask Cindy to introduce him. Thanks, John. Yes, our special guest today is attorney Lawrence Halloran. Attorney Halloran is an expert in the field of election law. He has more than 35 years of experience in public policy and advocacy, which includes a specific focus and expertise in election recounts and in election contests. His distinguished legal career, among many things, has included his service as the Minority Staff Director of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, as Executive Director of the Connecticut Republican Party, and as legal counsel to former Governor Lowell Weicker. Attorney Halloran has participated in recount proceedings on behalf of the U.S. House of Representatives, political parties, and candidates in many states across the country, including Connecticut, Indiana, Minnesota, Ohio, California, Virginia, Florida, and Michigan involving ballot access. More specifically, he spent many days in Florida during the 2000 Bush-Gore presidential election recount, training observers in participating in the complete recount of votes in Volusia County. And he's also been part of international election observation delegates in Iraq, the West Bank, Russia and Pakistan, although I understand that that particular election had been called off. But he is currently an adjunct faculty member at the Creighton University Law School. And it's so timely and we're so excited to have him with us this afternoon in hopes of helping us understand better on the current events following last week's presidential election. So Larry, hopefully you can give us some perspective. You know, we have the media, the news outlets, almost everyone uniformly declaring Joe Biden the winner of the presidential election. And simultaneously, we have ongoing legal maneuvers on behalf of President Trump's campaign in multiple states, um, some claiming fraud, denial of access to poll watchers, counting ballots received after deadlines, counting votes of deceased persons. And some of these motions have already been dismissed. But Let me ask you, do you feel that any or some of these legal maneuvers on the part of the Trump administration will survive a quick dismissal? And if so, could you please explain which ones may prove to have teeth? Sure. There are two elements of the cases that are out there right now that I think have some saliency and and may persist. Not that they'll change any outcomes. We're not there yet. But the, uh, the Pennsylvania question about late arriving ballots that the Secretary of State issued uh, an order that said that they would, because of COVID and other considerations, they would ignore the statutory deadline and and receive ballots some three to five days after the election. Justice Alito uh, stepped in and said, well, okay, we're not sure you can do that, but at least segregate those ballots. So if they are to be disallowed, we know how many there are. I would not be that surprised if in the end, whatever that is, that the, the Supreme Court steps into that case, assuming that the number of segregated ballots is not enough to tip the state. I don't think they'd step in there, but I'm assuming that there aren't that many to change the outcome, that they would step in and say, um, Secretary of State had no power to do that. That's the legislature's power to change that deadline, not 
that was not a discretionary act that he had the power to do. But that, again, wouldn't change the outcome. The question about observers, though, um, again, it was not outcome altering, but it is an important element of the post-election procedure that the public and candidates have access to the canvas and any recount because, uh, I think, as we'll discuss further later on, the canvas and the recount are at, its, at their heart, discovery proceedings in the event of a contest for the office. And so for there to be meaningful discovery, you have to see the evidence. Now, in these COVID times, that's hard. You have to stay six feet away and there's other protocols to be observed. But still, it's an important element of the post-election process to see the evidence so you can frame a case that a judge would be able to act on. So, and just Go ahead, Cindy. No, I was just focusing on Pennsylvania because you were, had mentioned that um, and access and um one of the things that I we noticed is that they were putting boarding up of the windows for people to look inside. I just was wondering what your impression or thoughts were on that. I think I think that was Michigan. They did it in Detroit too. I I think that's utterly unwholesome. I don't know why you do that. Every state that I'm aware of has protocols for public observation of the canvas and the recount process. And why it would be deemed disruptive or be necessary to cover up windows, uh, I don't know. I I saw no rational explanation for that. All right. So Larry I want to ask you a little bit about recount procedures, and this is kind of a two-pronged question. The first thing is, I understand it. most states have statutory criteria for when a recount can occur, and I saw that Arizona, for example, this morning, I read that has to be a difference of less than 200 votes. That's an automatic recount. Are there situations where the court can order, a court can order a recounting of the ballots outside of those statutory criteria? And is there a remedy of invalidating the whole election process? Um, the answer to both questions is yes, but it, it's it's an extreme case to make. Um, 21 states have automatic recount thresholds of various degrees, percentages, or numbers. The rest have discretionary at the request of the candidate, depending on the margin the requester often pays, for the, and they're not cheap. But in the event that a contest for the office is filed, Connecticut has a very thorough, a fairly recently updated contest statute, that if a candidate or a party files a, a a petition with the court, I think with this in this Connecticut's case, the Supreme Court, but in other you know local courts, a contest for the election that the the judge and the and the relief is asked for is a recanvas or a recount or a new election. The judge can order um, a recanvassing of some or all of the ballots in question to determine whether the the allegations that there is sufficient information to change the outcome is in fact true. So yes, courts can order recanvas, recounts, partial or whole. And the other the other question I had was that. One of the things that becomes important here is the timing of these procedures, because as I understand it, the electors for the national president presidential election have to be certified by a certain date. And can you give us a little information about that? Yeah, that's true. There are there are clocks ticking here all over the place that the that the the, the Trump people have to worry about. The election of electors is, I think, the farthest one. But in Pennsylvania, for example, again, the Secretary of State pleaded with Alito and others and saying we don't need any further, we can't stop counting because we have to see the legislature on December 1st. We have to figure out who won those races. And so just to say, let's stop the counting while we figure this out is, is not going to happen for a lot of reasons in a lot of places. So there are statutory deadlines. There are statutory deadlines to when you file a contest and when you petition for a recount and how long recounts can take. So there's a clock ticking. And, as, and in my experience, the evidence that um, of the election itself, that the, the ballots and the signatures and the envelopes and the, all the materials that make up the count, it, it's not getting any fresher. You, you, election result is best rendered sooner than later because trays and boxes of paper and machines and it's things, it spoils. It doesn't stay fresh very long. And it's if it's like my checkbook, you never get the same answer twice in a row when you're trying to balance it. I've never been in a recount 
that the answer came out the same as election day. Not by a lot, but um, it's just not the same. So the sooner they get to it, the better. So Larry, it's so important um, for the American people to feel that there's legitimacy in the whole voting process. And the term fraud has been bantered around in the last several days so much. Can you explain to us what does fraud mean in the uh, context of election law? Because I think it's people are, are interpreting it in different ways. Yeah, they certainly are. It's a it's been thrown around wildly in my view. I mean, the, the most basic kind of fraud is is pretending you're someone else and voting to walk in and say, this is my name, my address, and you vote on someone's behalf. That's fraud. To s- steal a ballot out of a mailbox and vote it on someone's behalf is fraud. The rest of what's being talked about is is a function of election administration. It's It can be malicious or innocent, but if you make a mistake, you put a pile of ballots in the wrong place. You re, you miscalibrate the, the, the scanner, and so it, it counts votes wrongly. Those can be done maliciously, but that's that's not fraud. Those are those are criminal acts, actually, and different flavor than fraud. But most of it is is election administration. Apparently, since 2000, we all fell in love with paper ballots. Election administration has gotten a lot more complicated. All thousands and thousands of pieces of paper floating around, and scanners and machines have to be calibrated. Um, and it, it gets quite complex. And the innocent error is nine times out of 10, the problem, not fraud, in my experience. And, you know, getting back to that point, Larry, it, claiming election fraud without a without a basis is in, is in and of itself election fraud is it i mean <laughs> right i mean and then to me the you know the first question that always comes to mind as a lawyer when i bring a lawsuit is does it have merit and is it a worthy lawsuit you know we we as lawyers sometimes hear the term frivolous lawsuits and when politicians stand up and say there's fraud there has to be some evidence, correct? Right. And evidence of sufficient weight that, you know, a judge would take it seriously to say, if, if even if you extrapolate this out, would it change the outcome? Because, I mean, we don't want to admit it, but I think after 2000, we were all forced to admit it, that these voting systems have an inevitable margin of error. You've got, you know, mostly elderly volunteers on one side of the table running the system. You've got voters on the other side. And any system you put to t- put between them and try to idiot proof. The idiots on both sides of the table are pretty determined <laughs> to confound the system and they, mistakes will be made. There's a margin of error. Most elections are won by m- much more than that margin of error, but there is one that is inevitable. It's not fraud. It's not malicious. It's just put a piece of paper in the wrong place. And so it is it is irresponsible to um, undermine the work of, of you know, hardworking lecturers. I've, I've spent 10 hours, three days a week in a warehouse in, in Maryland uh, canvassing mail ballots. And I don't want to be called, you know, a purveyor of fraud. I mean, it's I'm, it's right. tedious works. And there's a little oh. bit. Of, no, I'm sorry, Cindy. Just one other no, no, point, I, one other point on that, which is that it seems like the the Trump officials are taking inconsistent positions in various states. In one state, claiming we need to count all the votes, and another state saying we need to disallow votes. That seems to me to be a difficult argument to make. Oh, I agree. I and mean, that's, it's based on, you know, my survey of the lawsuits they've found so far, that's, there's no there there. There's no center to their claims about this massive national, I mean, Giuliani's talking about this national democratic, you know, national fraud effort, but they're, they're just throwing sand in the gears at this point, as you say, in many contradictory ways, just to try to slow things down, I think, until they can hopefully, in their hope, find something else. What I was going to ask, Larry, is you had mentioned about your canvassing, and I just was curious from an actual procedural standpoint, what it's involved, because uh, I really have no idea when you say you're canvassing, what are you doing? Well, it, I mean, they uh, we've got 30 tables of two, six, of six, six feet long tables, two person to each end, 30 sets of them in this big gymnasium or warehouse. And you're given a stack of 100 mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, mail-in ballots in Maryland because absentee is permissive. And there's a, a, a list, a printout that the envelopes have been scanned and you know who's in that pile. You check each envelope to make sure it's signed. 
that the voter has indeed, you know, executed the signature. They say, that's, this is my ballot. You open the envelope, you take out the ballot, which in this case, a two-page long scannable ballot. You examine it to see that it is indeed scannable, that there's not coffee and spaghetti or people do this stuff around the kitchen table. And you see my ballot, Larry. You saw my ballot. <laughs> Make sure it's scannable. If it's not, or if, or if the voter is, for example, you know, try to erase or say, oh, not that one. They they put X's, they, they give you little notes to say, I didn't mean that. Then the ballot is duplicated by a bipartisan team so it can be scanned and it's kept with the original so the election board can look at the two, make sure they're the same. And then when your 100 ballots are finished, you put them in a pile, put them in a box, they're taken to the scanner and scanned. Then you get the next hundred, and so that's that's the vote canvas here. And in most jurisdictions now that you know use the the mark sense ballots, that's pretty much the process. And it's in the terms of of fraud, something north of eighty five or ninety percent of votes cast in this election were cast on paper. And so there's evidence. There's a trail. There's no ghost in the machine. It's it's pretty solid evidence that that will persist. Of course, you can't get the issue like handing chads that I know you worked yeah. on in 2000 yeah. as to what does the paper ballot mean too. You know, so when Trent, Ted Cruz came out yesterday, it was all over the news that Ted Cruz said that there's a, a path for Trump to victory. Do you have any idea what he means by that? Yeah, yeah. And I actually, Dick Morris, a consultant had a piece yesterday that, that talked about that, that, that you go to Pennsylvania and you get, you turn that around, you go to Nevada, turn that around and Georgia, turn that around. And it's, it was, it was not plausible in my view. I mean, it, it's just, it's too much to do too quickly. And then with very little base, I don't see a court based on the evidence in hand right now saying there should be another election or that the the, the returns about to be certified are not valid. I just don't see it. But, uh, but, but having said that, it is the case that no legal act has been taken to say that Joe Biden is the president-elect. It is, it's kind of an odd, you know, title anyway. Um, in the past, you believed what the AP said. You believed what the state's initial counts were. And the GSA said to the, the, the winner, we're going to open a transition office for you. Well, as of today, the GSA administrator has not said that. She's waiting for something called an ascertainment, I don't know where she got that word, that Biden is indeed the president-elect because the White House won't, won't let her do otherwise. But no no legal, no, no state has certified a result yet, to my knowledge. There is no legal act that would say that the office is to be his. I mean, I, it, it is. I mean, the numbers are there and, they, and the, those certifications will come, but those legal acts have not happened yet. The other thing Larry, I want, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, John. Go so ahead. the one the one question I had is that be, let's say all of these uh, lawsuits are resolved in favor of Biden. There's still people talking in the news about a term that I've heard before: faithless electors. <laughs> Can you tell us what that means, and and is that a plausible scenario? Um, yeah, what it means is that when you know when you vote for president, you you're not really voting for. Joe Biden or, or Donald Trump, you're voting for the, in Connecticut's case, the eight names behind there, the eight electors that the winner of the popular vote in that state will send to the se- the floor of the Senate on December 14th to cast votes for, to elect the president. That's when the president actually gets elected under the Constitution. A faithless elector is someone who does not follow the state or party's laws or rules to say you will cast your vote. You, you'll be pledged to the candidate who won the popular vote in this state. It hasn't happened much. Um, I mean, I think in the history of the Republic, there have been 165 faithless electors and a couple, you know, Civil War elections and one candidate, Horace Greeley, died. And so they had to figure out what to do. And so they were considered faithless. But states and, and party rules bind electors pretty carefully. And the Supreme Court very recently said that state laws can do that. There was a challenge to whether the state laws could indeed bind electors. And the Supreme Court said, yes, they can. And so I think 
the risk of faithless electors in this instance is very low. I read that 32 states have those laws right now. Yes, I, don't know, I don't know which ones. I think Connecticut is one. Though. Yeah. Well, and as I said, beyond that, party rules would have an effect because these you become an elector, but you know Hillary Clinton's an elector in New York. I doubt she'll be a faithless elector. I think she'll pretty much do what the, the, the state party wants her to do. Larry, from what you've heard and read, have you seen any particular anomalies um, with voting that have given you any concern or made you think about you know whether there's some there might be something else going on? Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Um, one of the things you in a recount scenario, in particular in a canvas scenario, you look for is first you count the voters. How many people signed in? How many people were checked in to vote? And that should be the maximum number of votes you have for any office. And if you have more votes than voters, you have a problem. Something happened. Um, you shouldn't have more votes than voters. And this is, you know, this would be one per, one per person. Um, and I read recently that in Wisconsin, there are several precincts that are showing more votes than voters. So far, I think it was like 793 total, which is not going to change the outcome of the state. But if something systemic was going on, if they weren't checking people in, or people were giving two page ones of a ballot and both ballots being scanned, and the scanner only counts page ones, you can get more votes than voters. And that's that's not a good thing. That's a serious issue. Hmm. Again, not probably not outcome changing, but a, a problem that any secretary of state or, or county board of election should worry about. So the margins of obviously of the vote make a difference. If you have a lead of 20,000 votes, you got to have votes that are in contest more than 20,000. Yeah. I mean, in, in my in my experience, my rule of thumb, wholly made up by me, but um, in a recount is when a candidate comes to me and says, you know, should we get a recount? And if the, the margin of victory is less than one vote per precinct, whatever the jurisdiction is, legislative district, state, whatever. If the margin is less than one vote per precinct, a recount is very unlikely to change the outcome. One is and twosies change hands in recounts because a ballot's put in the wrong place or somebody mistabulated or miscounted or, you know, they were doing checks of five and they missed one. But bigger chunks without anomalies or, or real irregularities don't happen. So if the margin's outside one vote per precinct, the recount's just not going to change the outcome in my well, experience. I'm hoping we won't be talking to you again about this, Larry, in a few weeks. That's what I'm hoping. But I, I have a feeling that we're going to, we might have more recount issues when the Georgia Senate runoffs occur, because those seem to me may become extremely important. Yeah, I'm right. I'm, I'm interested to see, because apparently there will be a statewide recount of the presidential race in Georgia. And it's, this is the second time they've used their new voting system, uh, which is a, a touchscreen machine that you vote for the candidates and then it and then it prints out a scannable ballot, a ballot with your choices on it and a, what's called a Q code, a barcode that can be scanned to tabulate. And I ex I would expect that they will hit, for the, at least the presidential race, they will hand tabulate those. That is, sit people at the table, look at a ballot, say Biden, Trump, Biden, Trump, and someone next to them will tally it, that they won't rescan them. Because if there's a question about whether the scanning programming was accurate, whether it misaggregated or somehow you know misses or miscounts, you know, and invite that challenge and have to, and the companies are very unwilling to open up their software at the same time. So I expect they'll do a visual, a hand manual recount, but statewide, that, that takes a lot of time. Right. And that's, that's a big undertaking. And I guess the, one of the things I want to ask you as, a, as an election lawyer who's been involved in a lot of these disputes, do you think there's some system that we could use that you think is the system that all all election election should be? Is is it a touchscreen? Is it a paper ballot? What's the best way to stop all these kinds of problems yeah. if they exist? I'm not sure there is a way to stop all these problems. I mean, it's as I said, it's a large, clumsy, labor-intensive process that just doesn't look very good on TV, and that's maybe just too bad. I mean, I think you know, again, post 2000 and the call for auditable paper trails, the scannable ballot, the paper ballot is 
that can be scanned and then hand tabulated if necessary to recount is probably the best you're going to get right now. Georgia's system looks pretty good, actually. But the problem there, it's, it's the same here in Maryland. The, the touchscreen device, you'd think we'd be more technologically advanced by now. But they when you have a, a multi-party office, you say nine people running in a primary, and the screen only shows you the first seven, you have to scroll down to get the last two. Those last two candidates complain bitterly that they don't get. And so the people don't like to use those machines for that purpose. So you go, you're stuck with paper ballots all around. Um, now you think they could engineer the thing to get everybody on the same page, but so far it has. That's, that was a complaint here, and that's a complaint in Georgia as well. So I think that's that's the the mark sensor, the you know the fill in the bubble and scan is probably the best we're going to get right now. In answer, you didn't ask um, these calls for federalizing all this, standardizing the whole country. I am afraid of those. I mean, if if everybody used the exact same system, the exact same database, exact same tabulation system. Then the Russians have to find only one key to unlock the whole the whole bloody show. One hack brings down the whole thing. People complain about 50 state sets of rules, but th- that 50 state tower of Babel has saved us from so much mischief because one mistake could bring down the whole show. And, you know, Utah has different requirements and different candidates and even volume than New York or California. So I don't think you want to federalize the whole show. I think that's a, that's a dangerous idea. Sandy? Okay. Yeah, I, I, but you kind of answered it. I know you were part of a, a legal team was a number of years ago. You actually led it in the Indiana 8th District involving, I guess there was an incumbent, Francis McCluskey, who, and a Republican rep- opponent, Richard McIntyre. And one of the things that came up is that there were all these varying results that were blamed on inconsistent rules and unclear rules. And I guess what you're saying is that there's a there's a benefit, though, to having these different rules, maybe not inconsistent, but there's a benefit to having different rules per state. Yes, there's a there's a certain strength in, in that diversity of, of methodology that's, again, because one one hacker can't take down the whole system. And I mean, whole separate show in Indiana, and I spent six months there in 13 county courts, the federal district court, the state Supreme Court, and on the floor of the House. And it, it wasn't inconsistent procedure. I mean, the fact is that counties, some paper, some had paper ballots, some had the old, you know, lever machines like we used to use in Connecticut. Uh, some had punch cards. Lots of the biggest counties had punch cards. And counties were, you know, free to choose their voting methodologies, what they wanted to use. And it it was the claim of inconsistent results or partial results was the claim, was was based on a, on a in my view, purposeful misunderstanding of the process. And election night, as every place, the county, one county in particular, rendered an initial result. This is what we've seen so far. And they said, we're going to have the canvas the next day. The canvas the next day changed some votes. They didn't have everything election night. It's just, they were done. It sounds somewhat familiar. <laughs> right. But we're going to claim by the Democrats that, oh, you know, the, the Republican Secretary of State or Republican clerk in that county changed the results. And therefore, they took this extraordinary constitutional step on the, the day the House was sworn the majority leader, Jim Wright, stepped forward and said, objected to the seating of the member from Indiana, who was the Republican, who had been certified by the Secretary of State as the winner by, I think, 26 votes, because the state had rendered a result on which the House could not rely. And that had never been done in the history of the House, but done once in the history of the Senate. Um, there was usually a committee process that went through for contested elections. They went right to the Constitution, direct surgery, and said the member should not be seated. It was uh, not a pretty process and it had nothing to do with election administration, everything to do with politics. So. <laughs> Maybe nothing's changed too much. <laughs> so, Larry, just one last question, unless Cindy has something else to ask you. But one last question for me is, do you anticipate that any of these various claims are going to make it all the way up to the Supreme Court? I know you mentioned the one in Pennsylvania, but anything that you see yet that is rises to the level of being a constitutional crisis that we have 
to worry about. I do not. Um, again, the Pennsylvania one is likely. There was some chatter out there I saw today that uh, the Republicans were urging um, legislatures that are still in session to either you know, reappoint new electors or, or withdraw their electors and send no one. Because the, the scenario there is to try to create enough mischief with the, with the electors to send the, the election to the House and where they think they have 26 state votes to uh, 24 for the Democrats because that's the House. Like 1876, right? Yeah. When the House decides an election of presidents, the only time it votes by state, senators always do, but the House votes by, you know, my member. The only time that the House votes by state is when it's deciding a presidential election. So they think there's some chance there, but that's that's an even longer shot, I think, than overturning the results of three or four states. Thank you very much, Larry. Been very Thanks important. so much, Larry. You're welcome. All right. I hope we're not talking to you again in a few weeks, as I said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org. 